Hey friends, I'm Brian Doak and this is George Fox Talks Theology. This season on the Theology Channel, we are going to do a new thing. Instead of being here in the studio, which we are for most of our episodes, as you know, we're going to bring you live theology events from the campus of George Fox University. Some of these might be planned lectures in the evenings and some of these might be a classroom environment um, where we're teaching our students about scripture. But whatever the case, you got to imagine yourself in a live setting with an audience there. And if you're watching these, of course, on YouTube, you can see it. And if you're listening, you can think about it and, pl and place yourself right there in the seat of that audience. Really excited for these because they're all so good. We hope you enjoy. As the committee for this newly formed award, because this is the first, um, the first inaugural award, we were looking for someone who particularly embodied and embraced the virtues and the criteria of this award, which you get to read about in your handout, carrying on the legacy of Richard's work, the deep commitment to scripture, the deep commitment to the history and practices of spiritual exercises in the Christian tradition, all these virtues and values. And Trevor's name rose to the top after looking at a international and talented, accomplished group of writers and practitioners in the tradition of Christian spiritual formation. But how did he rise to the top? Of course, when you see the criteria, you see there's inherent paradox involved in granting an award in spiritual formation, sort of like getting the big prize for being most humble or something like that. So it's in the very nature of the achievement of the award in spiritual formation that if you're any good at it or insightful in writing about it, the excellent would involve the loss of self and self-concern, which would fuel aspiration for such an achievement. That's why the award is being offered to you only in spiritual Bitcoin tonight, Trevor, <laughs> which can be used at a future uncertain eternal date. But that loss of self and self-concern involved in true Christian spiritual formation is not so much about self-flagellation or self-deprecation, but rather the self is lost in the truly Christian adventure of living outside of yourself, in God through faith and in the neighbor through love, as Martin Luther had it. This is precisely what tipped the scales in favor of Trevor. In the final analysis, we gave the vote to Richard, and Richard said, well, it's because of Trevor's genuine presence to others that we want to give him this award. That's the embodiment. That's the embodiment of Christlikeness, the genuine presence you offer to others that can only come when you're set free from the shackles of the self by Christ himself. And so that's what we want to honor and lift up tonight. So it is my privilege on behalf of the university, the committee to offer this inaugural Richard J. Foster Award in Spiritual Formation to Trevor Hudson. Trevor, if you'd join me. It is quite overwhelming uh, tonight for me, and I just want to say thank you to each of you for carving out time and space in your own lives to, uh, to be here. Um, when Richard wrote the foreword to Celebration of Discipline, if I remember correctly, uh, Richard, you said that books are always written in community. And as I stand <clears throat> here tonight, awards are received in community. And uh, just so grateful to everyone who has been part of the journey over many years. Uh, my own church uh, in South Africa, the Methodist Church of Southern Africa, just teachers and mentors, uh, friends, um, and obviously, and most deeply, to my own family. And it's just an absolute joy uh, to have my daughter with me uh, tonight. From She flew 30 hours <laughs> to be here, and uh, it just means such a, such a lot. 
Um, I know that Debbie would like to be here and um, Mark as well, as well as their respective partners, uh, James and Marika. So thank you and thank you so much for the award. I do not receive it lightly in any way, uh, but it comes to me um, as a great gift of grace and I want to say thank you. I would like to read, if I may, a passage of scripture. I think moments like this give one an opportunity to go back to very special places in the Bible that have really shaped one's life. And this is one of those passages. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and she said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I've not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God, to your God. Mary Magdalene went <clears throat> and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And so we thank God so much for that gospel story uh, tonight. And I'm trusting that it's okay if I take a sip of water right now. <laughs> Over the years, my life has been shaped uh, by sentences. Uh, some of these sentences uh, come from the Bible. Uh, some of these sentences uh, come from books that I've read. And some of the sentences have been spoken to me by significant others. One such sentence was spoken to me in January 1979. I was working for six weeks uh, in a little ecumenical church called the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C., in the Adams Morgan area. It was my first visit outside of my own country uh, to your country. And before the terms had become fashionable in Protestant circles, this little church had connected deeply with one another the worlds of spiritual formation and missional engagement. The pastor of the church was a wonderful, wonderful man. His name was Gordon Cosby. 
And he was someone who embodied for me what it meant to be faithful to the pastoral calling. And I never, ever forget, just before returning to South Africa, uh, being with Gordon and asking him if he had a word for me as I went back to my own country. I've only asked three people in my life if they have a word for me. Hundreds of people have had words for me that I have not asked for. (laughs) And Gordon was quiet. And then he said to me words that scorched their way into my soul and engraved themselves upon my heart forever. He said to me these words, never forget, Trevor, that whenever you minister, each person sits next to their own pool of tears. Each person sits next to their own pool of tears. And as I stand here tonight, that sentence plays out in my own awareness again. And I'm deeply aware that each one of us here tonight, including myself, we sit next to our own pool of tears. Our own pool of tears in our families, our own pool of tears in our communities of faith, our own pool of tears in our respective countries. And it's against this background tonight that I want to extend an invitation to each of you and to myself as well to come and step with me into this gospel story. The risen Christ and Mary. It's a a story that begins with Mary standing next to her pool of tears. But the story does not end there. The story ends with Mary living beyond her tears. The story ends with Mary connecting deeply with the tears of others. The story ends with Mary practicing resurrection in a crucifying world. And so just for a few moments, just for a few moments, I want to invite you to place one foot in that gospel drama and keep your other foot firmly placed in your own pool of tears tonight, the pool of tears of your family, of your church, of your nation. And as we do this, my own prayer is that somehow the living word, the eternal word, Christ himself will step off the pages of scripture tonight for each of us and whet our appetites again to practice resurrection in a crucifying world. So I invite you to come with me. I want to ask you just to notice a few things uh, in this story, just a few things. I want you first of all just to notice the figure of Mary weeping. Her life had been devastated by two dark powers that stain every human life and nation. 
her life on the one hand had been devastated by the dark power of death. When she witnessed Jesus being crucified, she was devastated. She was devastated. All of us here tonight know the devastation of the dark power of death. All of us. All of us. The griefs, the losses of the pandemic. Who of us have been untouched by them? Or we could think of the slow death of a marriage that was once alive with closeness and intimacy. We could think of the slow death of a vocational calling that once was full with a sense of passion and enthusiasm. We could think of the slow death of a church that was once alive with living worship and living mission. Or we can even think of the terrible deadness of spirit that creeps into our life and robs us of a deep responsiveness to God and to our neighbor. Each one of us here, each one of us, we know this dark power of death. On the other hand, Mary's life had been devastated by the dark power of evil. The power of evil operating through the political leadership of the day, the religious leadership of the day, the indifference of the crowds, that dark power of evil operating in so many ways had nailed Christ to the cross. We also know the power of evil in our own lives. Some of us have been on the receiving end of actions of terrible evil in this room tonight. Of abuse, betrayal, exclusion, violation. We have also been instruments, you and I, through which this dark power of evil has hurt others through our betrayals, through our capacity to exclude others, to violate others. We are both the sinned against and the sinful. May I make a suggestion tonight? We begin to practice resurrection in a crucifying world when we have the courage to unmask these powers, these dark powers, they are dark powers of death and evil within our lives and around us. That's when we begin to practice resurrection. But let me be more personal. I was born in South Africa. And from my very early childhood, as a white South African, in the words of a South African academic, I was recruited into whiteness. Along with all the accompanying attitudes, the evil attitudes of superiority, of condescension, of arrogance, of privilege. And ever since I opened my own life to Christ as a 16-year-old, 
and with deep gratitude to my own Methodist Church of Southern Africa and to my black colleagues and friends, I had to unmask how evil worked through me in those attitudes. And that process of conversion still goes on right up to this present moment. Conversion has been a very, very slow process. I don't know how this dark power of evil and death, I don't know how it operates in your life, in your family's life, in your church's life, in your nation's life. I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is this, that when we have the courage to unmask those dark powers, to recognize them within our lives and around our lives, I know that in those moments we practice resurrection in a crucifying world. But come back with me. Let's step back into this drama. I want you to, I want you to notice again how Jesus listens to the language of Mary's tears. I don't know about you, but I've always been deeply, deeply moved by the way Jesus comes to Mary Magdalene as she weeps. Always been moved by it. He doesn't judge her for her tears. He doesn't uh, condemn her for her tears. He doesn't try fix her up in her tears. He doesn't offer her any religious cliches he doesn't say to her, for goodness sake, Mary, cheer up. Can't you see? It's Easter Sunday morning. Put a smile on your face. Doesn't do any of that. Doesn't do any of that. He asks a question. Why are you crying? Why are you crying? And it's a question that helps Mary to tell the story behind her tears. It's a question that helps Mary to give voice to her pain. It's a question that helps Jesus to discover the language of Mary's tears. I want to suggest, and this is a suggestion, that we begin to practice resurrection in a crucifying world when we learn to listen to the language of the tears of those who suffer. I don't know where the pools of tears are right now for you, in your own family maybe, your church, your work, your country. But our first act as Christ followers is to learn to listen to the language of tears. Listening Radical listening lies at the heart of a transforming life with God. It lies at the heart of transforming ministry and mission. It is our first act of love. Our first act of love. It is the first commandment. Listen, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. And while 
our response must never end with listening. If it doesn't begin with listening, our acts of justice and reconciliation will miss the mark. Nineteen thirty-eight, Dentrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words, and I've memorized them because I read them so often, and it takes years for words to get from my head to my heart. And as he prepared ministers to minister against the background of rising narcissism, he wrote these words. Nineteen thirty-eight. Many people today are looking for an ear that will listen. They don't find it amongst Christians because Christians are talking instead of listening. And the Christian who is deaf to his or her neighbor will soon be deaf to God. Chilling words. Chilling We practice resurrection in a crucifying world when we begin to to listen to the language of the tears of those who suffer around us. Sometimes when I leave your country, I'm able to come here usually twice a year, and on my way back, I'll um, I'll, I'll say a little prayer to God. I'll say, Lord, I... I would appreciate it so much if on the plane back there'd be no one around me. <laughs> just, just some space. Please, Lord. Just, just one, request, one request. And then usually, uh, more, more often than not, I will find myself in the midst of a mission team <laughs> coming out to Africa. <laughs> And that's when I go underground. (laughs) And I'll say, you know, uh, what are you coming to do in Africa? And I love the energy and the enthusiasm of the group. And I will hear different things. We're coming to evangelize. We're coming to be with AIDS orphans. We're coming to build a health facility. I have never, ever heard anyone say to me, we are coming to listen, to listen, to listen to the language of tears in your context. It is the first act of love and of compassion. Can we go back to the story for one last look? I want us just to notice how how Mary turns towards Jesus in her tears. It's a beautiful moment, and I've often, I've often just imagined it. When Jesus uh, calls her name, and I've often wondered, how did, how did that sound? And she turns, she turns. And it's a, I don't know for you, but it's a beautiful picture for me of Repentance. A beautiful picture of repentance. For a long time, repentance was a bad news word in my life. It was a threat. Repent for the end is nigh. That is a threat. Or turn or burn. That is a threat. Repentance is not a threat. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to turn to the one who can transform our lives and make us a little bit more human, a little bit more compassionate, a little bit more other-centered, a little bit more responsive to God and to others. 
we practice resurrection in a crucifying world when we learn to turn to Christ in our own tears. Can I just ask you to observe two things quickly about Mary's turning moment? It's a beautiful moment. Will you notice that she turns in response to her name being called? If you were to say to me, Trevor, what is your favorite, favorite, favorite phrase in the Bible? Well, I've got many, but one of the top five, called by name. Called by name. And when I just live with that phrase for, for a while, it reminds me at the heart of this universe, there is a great love. <laughs> a great love. That at the heart of this universe, there is a great love that has desired each one of us into existence. A great love that has poured God's self out for us. A great love that has absorbed those dark powers of evil and death and triumphed over them. A great love that knows each one of us by name. By name. And we turn to that great love. So that that great love can enter us and flow through us. And the other thing, just will you notice this? This is not the first time Mary has turned. She turned years before. Now she turns again. In fact, in this one story, 12 verses, she turns twice. <laughs> we never stop turning. We never stop turning. Repentance, yes, is a doorway. It's a doorway into our life with God, but it is the pathway along which we travel every day of our lives. Every day of our lives. Every day of our lives we turn from our deeply ingrained self-interest, our deeply ingrained self-centeredness, selfishness, egocentricity, narcissism, each day deeper levels reveal themselves to us of our own self-centeredness. And we turn, we don't get depressed by what we see. <laughs> it gives us an opportunity to turn again into a great love that wants to fill us, that wants to flow through us in deep compassion to those around about us. We practice resurrection in a crucifying world when we turn and turn, keep turning till this great compassion, this great love flows into us and through us to those around about us. If there's one thing I've learned as a South African, if there's one thing I've learned in our own struggle against apartheid and in our life post-apartheid, if there's one thing I've learned, it is this. We can only have a new future when we have a new kind of human being. We can only have a new future when we have a new kind of human being. A new kind of human being who is turning away from these deeply ingrained tendencies of being curved in on oneself so that we are turned outward in compassionate response to those around about us.
I've offered to you three modest proposals tonight. I've suggested that we practice resurrection in a crucifying world when we unmask those dark powers of death and evil that stain our lives and our world. That we practice resurrection in a crucifying world when we learn to listen to the language of those who suffer around about us. That we practice resurrection in a crucifying world when we turn in our self-centeredness towards the great transformer who is able to change hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, who is able to make us a new kind of human being. Can I end with one other sentence that has shaped my life? And you will forgive me, but I'm going to quote a Methodist. Stanley Jones was a Methodist missionary in India. Near the end of his life, which was a deeply sacrificial life, uh, he made a casual observation, but it was built on years of experience. He said that in the church, the communities of faith, there are two kinds of people. Two kinds of people. There are those whose lives are curved in on themselves, who live only for themselves. He says, they are the most miserable bunch in the world. And then he says, there's another group, a smaller group, very small who've been touched by a great love and who are willing to empty their own lives in compassionate response to the suffering of this world. And he says these words, and I quote him, those people are filled with a wild, wild joy. And so tonight, I invite you to begin a journey of practicing resurrection in a crucifying world that we may be filled before we die with a wild, wild joy. God bless you, friends, and thank you for listening. Amen. Thank you, Trevor. Trevor's agreed to join us for a question and answer conversation with two of our committee members. So maybe you could join us over there, Trevor, at the seats. And, uh, and Richard Foster, look, I have two microphones. <laughs> two committee members are gonna run this. One, Lindsay Hankins, the director of the School of Theology, and the other, Kurtley Knight, professor of spiritual formation at Portland Seminary. Dr. Knight. Let's give Trevor a hand one more time. Yeah, we'll, we'll pull up for you. You got it. Um, I mean, wow. I mean, wow. As a, uh, as a, uh, as a homiletician, I was just amazed as a, from, a, from a homiletic standpoint. But not only that, but, uh, but, the, but the, the quality and depth of your remarks. Thank you so much for your kind words. Um, and what we're gonna do is we're gonna open up uh, to the audience for you to ask some questions of Trevor as well. We also have, uh, have Richard here and both myself, my colleague, we might start off with one or two before we open it up to the floor uh, for you to ask some questions. Um, Trevor, my good friend, I saw you via uh, video this summer as we were doing some Renovare things. 
and I was really touched by your, by your lecture this evening. I'm curious, and I, I want you to comment on it. You, you actually use some interesting language very uh, at the beginning and, of course, throughout about death, right? About death. You mentioned death and evil and talking about unmasking death. And I'm curious, usually in, in, in our current society, we're used to thinking about losses, but we're not used to thinking about death. And so are many deaths. So I'm, I'm curious of why that language of naming our deaths is so important to you. And what, why, why is that thank, so important? Yeah, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. It's a big question. I tried to talk for longer so the question time would be less. <laughs> uh, I think, first of all, uh, evil and death are often bracketed in the New Testament. And uh, that's one reason I talk about evil and death and not evil and loss, as it were. Right, right. Um, I also want to use the, de the word very uh, intentionally. I want to use the word death because I'm not too sure which pope it was. I think it was, I'm not too sure, who's, who often would say we live in a culture of death. John Paul II. Um, and I want to take that seriously. Um, I think that, again, when I read scripture, the command, almost the strong invitation, today I set before you the way of life, the way of death, choose life. That we just seem to have this habitual tendency to, t to choose death. You know, even in the smallest choices of our lives, to choose that which will ultimately sabotage my life, my relationships, the country I live in. And that is why I use the word death very purposefully. Uh, I don't know if that's helpful. No, that's very helpful. Yeah. You ever have one of those experiences where uh, you're just so taken <laughs> by what so someone's saying is that you didn't do your homework? Uh, <laughs> I'm telling you. It was hard. Yeah, I'm coming up here winging it because I was just so taken with it's what you were so saying. Um, listen, it, it's a small mind and a broken soul who critiques someone's title. But I, so much of what you were saying about unmasking evil, mm -hmm. of laying things down, of listening to the people, of, to the, the voice of the hurting, the suffering, those whose tears puddle around them, whether you notice it or not. To me, that sounded, and this is maybe riffing off your question a little bit, that sounded like a practice of crucifixion in a world that denies what's like crucifobic, is that a word, right? That in a world that refuses good forms of death. Especially with your last point, Yes, resurrection, turning towards the one who actually is the great transformer, absolutely. But I, to me, it, and again, <laughs> small mind to critique a title, but it just sure. so much, I read so much of what you were saying as forms of good crucifixion. But, so I would love, oh, so it's less that the world is crucifying, I think it is, it's, a, it's the world, a love that came right. to this world that had to be crucified, right? Like a, right. we were not ready for a love, we are not ready for a love of that grandness. Right. And yet we are also called to crucify Thank ourselves. So there's like some, anyway, that's, form a question from that however you would like. Um, <laughs> someone who had not been so taken with your speech would have been a better moderator here. But, but I would love to hear maybe, maybe this is the way of putting it. Um, how do I practice a good crucifixion in a world that right. Right. doesn't recognize our resurrection? Thank you. Uh, again, uh, it's, a, it's a question that just evokes so many thoughts going around in my own heart and mind at the moment. And I think you really have put your finger on a very critical dynamic of our life with Christ. And that is that it is a life of dying and rising. 
I just wanted to come out on the resurrection side. <laughs> uh, I wanted to live on the other side of Easter. I want to embody and I want to encourage others to embody in a very cruciform world to embody something of resurrection joy. And I really take it that that will involve often this pattern of dying and rising, dying and rising. And that in each of those activities or practices that I was inviting the audience into, uh, the unmasking of evil, the radical listening to tears, the language of tears, and the turning towards God, each of those involve, you're spot on, Mm -hmm. they involve a form of crucifixion. Mm -hmm. And I want to say, and resurrection as well. So that's the best I can do, but I think you, well, you, yeah, you're right. There is a, there is a dying that I am called into, um, and arising. Thank you so much. Um, you want to? Did you want to sure. riff on that? Go ahead. Well, thank you. Thank you for tonight. It's wonderful. I want you to tell a story, okay? (laughs) You worked, I don't know how many years, but you worked with Desmond Tutu, I know. And I think we all know who that is and was. Do you have a story about your time with Desmond? (laughs) I'd love to hear that. There are many stories I could tell because when I was a minister in the center of Joburg in the Central Methodist Church, he was the dean of the cathedral the Anglican Cathedral. So he was a young man, I was a young man, and um, he in fact did Bible studies uh, at our church, which I can still remember, four lectures on Genesis chapter one and two. But the best story I can share (laughs) is uh, we were in jail together and... um, You were in what? We were in jail together for a night. <laughs> and and he, we were in the cell, and it was very moving because it was in at the height of apartheid. And I remember him saying, you know, I've worked for unity in the churches for so long with so little result, and yet here there are 48 of us in prison coming from different denominations. And we discovered unity within the context of a prison cell. Wow. But the funny story is wow. he's, he's, he said there's a, I think it was him and Peter, who's, Peter's story, who said, you know, in the, in, in the book of Acts, there's a story about the cell doors opening. He said, I'm going to try. <laughs> and he went across, and this is, this, is, this is very true, he pushed the cell door and it opened, and then we, we didn't know what to do after that. <laughs> we had to call the guards to say, put us back in. <laughs> uh, it was, that's one I could tell other stories, but that's the one. That's good, that's good. That's good. Well, I think it's, oh, that's so good. I think it's good we all got a chance to ask a question of, of Trevor. I want to open it up to the audience, and we'll just run the mics um, as we go. Um, that perhaps if there's something you'd like to ask Trevor, whether it is something that was shared from tonight, uh, or I'll open it up maybe Trevor to something that was mentioned in a book that that you know that he has authored that perhaps has touched you. You want a little further inquiry? We have the man uh, here tonight, so we're going to open the floor at this time and and take some questions. Is your earpiece working? Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, there we go. That'll work. All right. So we'll... Okay, we got one there in the back. Thank you so much, Trevor. I have a question about... about, uh, A practical question about listening. Sure. So if this is a talk on spiritual formation, what do I do to become a better listener? What do I do tonight? What do I do tomorrow? What do I do week in, week out? Oh, thank you. I just feel that's one of the most important questions that can ever, ever be asked. 
I think for, for me to begin with is to realize that I'm not a good listener can be helpful. Simone Vale once said that it is almost impossible for us to give our complete attention to someone who's suffering. Mm. That's why she saw prayer as attention. Mm. That it is very hard for us. And I think this is what was said earlier about dying. Yeah, yeah. Listening is an act of dying. Mm. It is an act of, to some degree, of crucifying what I want to say, my interests, in order for me to be a fully attentive to you. So I think for me a beginning point, and one that I return to again and again and again, is I'm not a good listener. Lord, I really would like to be a better listener, and will you lead me on the journey? I think the second thing that I would want to mention here is that I'm finding it very important to listen to difference. To listen to difference. We find it, I think, a little easier to listen to those in the same echo chamber as ourselves. We find it very hard to listen to difference. And I think that, I think that can be quite intentional as a journey. I want to begin widening the circle of my own life. And I want to begin listening to people that I've never listened to before. And I think each of us will have those folk who are in our echo chamber and those who are not part of the circle. So for me, it's got something to do with going on a journey, seeing it as absolutely integral to our faith. It was a massive moment for me when, Jonathan, when I read John, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, chief rabbi of London, died a year or two ago, that... The, that <laughs> Old Testament spirituality, Jewish spirituality, is a Shema spirituality. Mm -hmm. And he drew my attention to the fact that the very first word in the great commandment is listen, listen, listen. Mm -hmm. And that there's no English translation for it. It kind of, you know, it's to be alert, be aware, be watchful, be yeah, vigilant, yeah. yeah, yeah. uh, etc. So I just want to cheer you on in the sense of having that intention and letting... And I don't want to over-spiritualize here, letting the Lord lead you on a listening journey, which just ke keeps making our world get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, I think the first book I, letter I ever read in the scriptures was the letter of James, and I nearly stopped being a Christ follower after I read <laughs> the book of James. But James, I think, had, had, you know, James just said, you know, be slow to speak, be quick to listen. So maybe the, a, a practical starting point is I just begin, my words become fewer. I become less talkative. And I just become much, I want to be more of a listening presence in this world. Mm. And there is a time to talk. But I think James gets that ratio right. Thank you for a great question. That's Any other wonderings? Any other wonderings? We have the man here himself. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for risking the question. and. That was going to be my question. That's a good one. Thank you. I really appreciate how you took us into that story and took your time with it and really helped us to notice so much in it. And um, there was something, something I noticed that I wonder if you could just elaborate on was I was really struck by Mary's almost obsessed or wants to find the body. Sure. Um, yeah. And yeah. that's understandable, of course. Sure. But I also wondered if sometimes we're preoccupied with finding the body right? and we miss where Jesus actually is. Oh, right. So I didn't know if you've thought about oh, that. Right. Um, oh, right. Oh, if no. you might elaborate oh, on that. Thank you, thank you. There's a whole world, isn't there, in that? Um, that somehow her kind of, kind of preoccupation with the body was almost... Um, making it a little bit harder for her to recognize where Christ was and it, for her. 
But I think you're putting your, I think you, your comment also gets me thinking about something mm-hmm. of just how much there is in a gospel story. And I remember reading Richard, Richard wrote, and I took it on as a practice for myself, I, I, and I think I might be quoting you right, Richard, where you re- spent a year in the story of Jesus and Lazarus. Is that correct? And I just remember you sharing the consequences of dwelling in one story for one year. And I think there's something in that what you were saying. You know, you begin to see a detail, a narrative detail that you can spend, yeah. that you can spend weeks and months with because it's got, to, it's got to stop being insight and theory and it's got to become part of our embodied lives. Mm-hmm. And that takes a bit of time. Mm-hmm. So thank you for spurring us on in that direction. Appreciate. Wonderful question, thank you. Does anybody else have a question? We'll take one more question. Okay, we got Paul. Not from a New Testament scholar on John, (laughs) please, no. no. About John 6. (laughs) Um, Really loving your book, Seeking God. Um, As I worked through that, it struck me, this book cannot be read quickly. I found myself pausing and wanted to take in about every page. Can you say something about that book and what led you to write that book? thank Thank you, Paul. Thank you for the interest. It started with Debbie. Debbie is the person I'm married to. Now, Debbie has not read one of my books. She usually says, when she cannot go to sleep, now this is important background. When she cannot go to sleep, she'll say to me, just read something deep from one of your books, just so that I can slip off to sleep. But about seven years ago, she said to me, Trevor, I know know what the theme of your next book is gonna be about. And I was really intrigued, I really was. And she said, it's going to be about seeking because ever since I met you, I've known you to be a seeker. So that was the seed. Uh, I think she put her finger on a word for me. And then obviously my own deep indebtedness to these two figures spanning centuries, 15th century, 21st century, Dallas Willard, Ignatius, and just an intuitive sense that even though they were coming out of very different backgrounds, there was was something they both had in common in terms of some of their emphases. And I think what they both had in common, if you were to push me a little bit on this one, is they were profoundly Christ-centered, profoundly centered in the Gospels, the exercises, you spend time in the Gospels. Dallas, uh, and I know that he loved all of us, I know that, but there was just this coming back to this centrality of who Christ is and the place of the Gospels. And that has also been a part of my own journey. I never forget, and I'll end with this, but I never forget once when Dallas first came to our country, I was telling um, Joseph about the visit, and um, he came and he sat in our lounge, and I, I think I wanted to impress him, and so I sat there with a the yellow pad, and I said, could I just have some books that you would really recommend I read? Uh, you know? And he was quiet, and he said, uh, Trevor, a Matthew, a Mark, Luke, and John, and may, maybe spend about the next 20 years in them. And I think Ignatius would have agreed. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Thank you so much for all Thank of you. your kindness in answering our questions. Everybody, let's give them a hand one more time. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. So I know you're above and beyond awards and rewards, but you do have to take this, Trevor. Ah. Yeah, be, be presented with That's the inaugural so, so award. So special. Yeah. So special. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. And this as well.
Lord, let these words from the heart, from Trevor, and words from you and your scripture, God, may they give life, Lord. If any of us believe in you, out of our hearts will flow torrents of living water. And I pray that that living water would surge in us and flow in this community, God. We thank you for the living witness of those who have followed you, followed and sought your face in this part of the valley for a long time. And we just pray your blessing on this campus and the students here and for the way this award holds up that living flame, Lord. Just thank you for the opportunity to be together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.